I just, uh, good morning. Am I on? Yep. Just want to say, uh, it was great to hear from Aaron and just what an encouragement. I've known Aaron since he was in high school. Um, it's not easy to step up and, uh, you know, do something up front. Not just Aaron and the other service leaders, but also those who uh, lead our singing. Um, if you didn't know, uh, to do something like service leading or uh, worship leading or playing in the band takes hours of work. None of them get paid for it. Um, and they serve us so well. And I just want to encourage you because one of the ways that we can serve them well is actually just coming on time. Because there's nothing more discouraging than having spent five hours preparing for a service, getting up here, welcoming three people. Um, so have a think about what it will take for you and your family to get to church on time or early. We do have coffee set up so that you can have coffee beforehand. That's part of the intention. Have a chat beforehand. Um, that's a really important way that we can serve them. Yeah? But thank you, Aaron, and the other service leaders and the worship leaders. You guys do such a good job. We're so grateful. Okay, uh, so my name is Pete. I'm the lead pastor of our church. And uh, I wanted to ask you whether you, you probably have heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, right? Have you heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? A very famous experiment done by psychologists. They've done it multiple times. The first one was in 1970. Uh, this is how it went. 32 children were offered one marshmallow now, or if they could wait 15 minutes, they would get two marshmallows. All right, have a think about that. When you were like, say, five or six year old, what would you have done? Would you have opted for the one now? Or would you have waited 15 minutes to have two later on? Now, you probably already know about the experiment, but what I didn't know was this. When they were waiting, the marshmallow was actually in front of them. Like, I just thought it was a verbal thing. You can have one now, or wait 15 minutes, I'll give you two. But actually, what they did in the experiment was they put the marshmallow in front of them. And so what they did, what the children did during this time was observed, and that's quite interesting. So this is, came from the report. Um, the report said some children covered their eyes with their hands. Some rested their heads on their arms. Some found other similar techniques for averting their eyes from the reward objects. Many seemed to try to reduce the frustration of delay of reward by generating their own diversions. They talked to themselves they sang, they invented games with their hands and feet, and some even tried to fall asleep while waiting, as one successfully did. I think we all have that one friend. But you know the experiment uh, was all about the idea of delayed gratification. And it was important because then they tracked these kids over decades, and they found that the children who could wait 15 minutes for that second marshmallow, right, they could delay gratification they ended up having better life outcomes in all sorts of metrics. Um, so SAT scores, their HSCs, um, educational attainment, um, even body mass index, other life measures. They were way ahead of those who couldn't wait. Well, today we're going to ask the question, and God wants to ask you the question, how are you at waiting? How are you at waiting? Because this parable that, uh, that Aaron just read for us, that the uh, middle of chapter 25 uh, forms a series of parables. There's actually four parables, and all of them have the same big idea, all right? Followers of Jesus have to wait. Um, so last week, if you were here, Pastor Marshall, at the end of chapter 24, there was a parable of the faithful servant. And that parable, which, you know, at the end of 24, is really the template for all of the parables that follow. 
We uh, also didn't look at the first 13 verses of chapter 25, but if you have your Bibles open, you'll see the heading. It's a parable of the ten virgins. What were they doing? They were waiting for the bridegroom. And then we have this one, the third one. The point is this, all of the Christian life is about waiting. It really is. And so how we wait really matters, much more than the marshmallow experiment. So why don't you join me in prayer, and then we'll get into this passage together. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, because we know that waiting is hard. And Jesus and his promise to return, that's really hard to wait for. Father, help us to hear what we have to hear what Jesus has to say to us, so that we might wait in an active and faithful way. Amen. Uh, Three points for this uh, morning. Um, Let's go through uh, this story, the parable, beginning with the master and his servant. So you know a parable is um, is symbolic, as in it has a message to it, and usually the characters stand for something else. So, of course, in this parable, there's one master, and the master would be Jesus. Um, There's three servants, and the servants all symbolize or stand for followers of Jesus. Um, The setting. Have a look. uh, Have your Bibles open, by the way, because... Uh, You're going to need it open. Verse 14. Let's have a look at the setting. Again, it, um, and Jesus here means the kingdom of heaven, because that's what he introduced in verse 1. It, or the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. All right, we, we read that this master is about to go away, and he's going on a really long journey. It's going to be a long time. So this is not 15 minutes of a marshmallow experiment. This probably was years, perhaps even decades. And so he calls his servants, or slaves, and he gives them instructions. Now, the original has slaves, and it's important to note that they were slaves, so they're not employees, in that they don't have a choice here. They belong to the master. They work for the master. Now, Jesus is not condoning slavery, but he is using things that were very familiar in the first century to convey a point. All right, but these were slaves. But the other thing you need to know is that slaves in the ancient Roman world uh, had different responsibilities. Um, In fact, some of them were like household managers. Some would help their masters with their businesses. And many slaves were even paid, all right? And many slaves, because they were paid, could eventually buy their own way uh, towards freedom out of slavery. But here we have the master, and he gives each of his slaves an amount of gold, and it's clear from the parable that what he wants is that they would do something with that gold. And it's really understandable once you understand how much gold it is. Now, we have a bag of gold in in the uh, English translations you've got. If you look in the footnote, it'll say a talent. And older translations will say a talent. Now, uh, what's a talent? A talent was a, a measure of weight, weight measurement. Each talent is something like 30 to 40, ki- 30 to 40 kilograms, okay? So that's quite heavy. It's, it's kind of a few bags of rice, 30 to 40 kilos. But talent, in terms of money, also was, uh, was worth a lot. Because one talent, we know, was 6,000 denarii. That was the currency of the day, And one denarius is one day's wages for a regular person, okay? One talent, 6,000 denarii, each denarii and each denarius is one day's wages. Do a bit of a calculation, one talent is probably, well, because there's 6,000 denarii, it's nearly 20 years of wages. So if you had to do a quick calculation based on Australian average wage, 
all right, for the average Australian, we're looking at, all right, one talent would be the equivalent of nearly $2 million Australian. That's how much we're talking about. $2 million for one talent. See, when you're given that much money as a slave, you're expected to do something with it. Now, we're going to go into that in a bit more detail of what we're supposed to do with it, but immediately we've got an application, don't we? Because remember, the master is Jesus, and we, his followers, are his servants. Then if that's the case, then the message of this parable is pretty clear, isn't it? And the message was this. It's a long wait, and how we wait matters. You see, right before these series of parables, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he has just talked about, that we saw last week with Pastor Marshall, what the end will be like. What the end will be like. And, and chapter 24 ended with this, you'll remember if you were here last week. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let the house be broken into. So also you must be ready, because the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus has just talked about his second coming, his return, but he's saying, it's not yet, right? I'm coming, but you're going to have to wait. I'm coming when you're not going to expect me. So you better wait well. And so the Bible, and not only here, the Bible in lots of places gives two pictures of waiting, right? There are those who are going to wait well and get busy waiting well, but then there are those who aren't going to wait well. Those who are going to be like, well, let's eat and drink and indulge in our pleasures. It doesn't really matter. And the point of these parables is this, the stakes are really high. Whether you wait well or don't wait well, right, will really matter. Now, they won't, it won't save you, okay? It's, it's trusting in Jesus that saves us. But it will indicate, it will be an, an evidence of whether or not you are saved. And, and we'll see this in the parable, right? Your salvation will show itself as to whether or not you wait well, get busy waiting well, or slack off and don't wait well. You see, friends, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose again and ascended. It's been a long wait for all of his people last 2,000 years, for him to come back and make everything right. And it's actually more dangerous for us, probably, than for any other Christians at any other time in any other place. Because, quite frankly, Australian Christians, Christians in the West, we are so comfortable and so worldly. Like, why even think about a better world when so much is immediately so good for us, isn't it? It's very different for Christians in persecuted countries, Christians in the third world. But for First world Christians, life is pretty good. And, and so it's really hard for us to wait. I, let me just ask you, the Black Friday sales were last Friday, right? It's still, it's still happening this weekend, tomorrow, Cyber Monday. Right? I, I looked online, got a lot of sales, bought a lot of stuff. But do you know what? I don't think it occurred to me at any point during these sales, any of the purchase decisions I made, I don't think it occurred to me at any point to ask the question, what difference does it make that Jesus might be coming back? Probably you're the same as well, whether you did the Black Friday sales. The last major life decision that you made, the mortgage that you took out, the house that you bought, the job career change, your plans for next year. How many of us actually thought of those decisions in light of the fact that Jesus could come back, our master could come back at any time? Let's admit it, probably none. And yet Jesus is saying, 
This matters, right? Because our master has been gone a long time, and if we live like he's never coming back, then that, it, this must be a huge wake-up call. So let's keep going in this parable, because there's probably a lot that we need to get out of it now. Um, okay, so let's go. Point number two, the servants and the talents. So three servants, but the first two belong in the same category, because verse 16, look there, verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. Now, you want to note these servants' uh, eagerness. They were eager. The master leaves. What did they do? It says they went at once to work. They went straight away, put his money to work at once. Now, what kind of work might have that been? Well, they weren't trying to make a quick buck, okay? It's not like they went and said, well, I've got millions of dollars now. I'm going to go buy some cryptocurrency or I'm going to go to TAB and do sports bet or whatever. And, you know, they couldn't just buy shares in a publicly listed company. There was no you know, ASX at that time. So with that kind of amount, they would have had to buy, probably invest by buying lots and lots of small businesses in Jesus' day. Or they might have been able to start some small businesses themselves, which means that they had to employ some people. Um, they had to negotiate contracts with tradespeople. And these companies would have all had to grow and thrive for them to make a significant return on their money, which means all of this would have been risky. Any of these investments could have flopped. These businesses could have folded. And likely some of them did, right? But of course, the result in this story is that both servants doubled the master's money. So the first servant, remember, he had five talents. Each talent is about $2 million. That's $10 million. Well, he doubled it to $20 million. Um, the second's $4 million made another $4 million. But the point is, they had to put in the work. Well, what about the third servant? Well, he's the contrast, right? Verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole, hid his mother's, uh, master's money. Um, how long would it have taken him to dig a hole and bury that money? I mean, it's quite a lot of money, 30 to 40 kilos. So it probably would have taken a couple of hours. But that's all it would have taken, a couple of hours of hard work, digging a hole, burying it. And then he could have just, what, enjoyed himself, because now, the master's gone for years, decades even, he is a masterless slave. Wow, now I can really live it up. It's like when mom and dad go out of the house and the teenager decides to throw a party. Right? He gets to do that for the next few decades. But what a, what a big contrast, isn't it? This servant and the other two servants. He's clearly lazy. He's squandering the opportunities and the privileges. I mean, if the master wanted him to just keep the money safe... The master could have dug the hole himself, or the master could have said, look, before I leave, you've got a couple of hours, go dig a hole, bury my money. Right? That would have been the easy thing. The message is pretty clear, isn't it, friends? God is asking us today, how are you, how are we going to use all that he has given us? How are we going to put to work all that he has given us? And now at this point, we need to clarify something because we've got to ask the question, well, what has God given us? What, what does it mean? What does that symbolize in this parable? Remember, bag of gold translates the word talent. Now, here's the thing, though. When the English Bible was first being translated, um, the man who translated the English Bible uh, used the word talent, the English word talent. And that translation of the Bible became so influential that that word talent actually became uh, the word that we now mean talent, as in it influenced the way that we use English today. And talent is the word that we normally use, obviously not in terms of money, 
But what do we mean by talent? We usually mean by talent, you know, those God-given abilities, the gifts that you've got, things that you do well. So someone's talent is to build furniture, another person's talent is music, another person's talent is singing or speaking uh, or accounting or whatever it is, right? And, and, and maybe that's what Jesus is talking about, right? Because that's certainly the way that the word talent has come to mean over the years in English. But if, if that's the case, then some of you will be born with more talent and others with less talent. And if that's the case, and Jesus is saying, well, you take your abilities and your gifts, those things that are uniquely um, you, and you do the best you can with them. Now, is that what it actually means in this parable? Is it all about how you're going to use your natural abilities and gifts and talents in that way? Well, I kind of want to say yes, but it's not the full picture, all right? It's not the full picture, because did you notice verse 15? Have a look at verse 15. The master gives the servants different amounts, and look what it says next, each according to his ability. You see, I don't think talent can just mean natural abilities, because how much they're given is indexed to their ability. You see what I mean? Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. So the talent here, what it symbolizes, has got to be more than just, I think it includes but it's got to be more than just your natural abilities. So, probably, it would include, I think at the very least, it would also include money. Okay, remember, Jesus' hearers would not have thought talent equals abilities, because that's not what it meant in those days. They would have thought talent equals money. So, I think Jesus at least means also your financial situation. They're part of what God has given you, entrusted to you. But I think it's more than that as well. I think God has actually given us, or actually we're meant to see that everything that God has given us at our disposal, that at our disposal, whether it's tangible things like money or not, that everything we have is given by God to be used for His glory. And so if you want to think as broadly as possible, what has God given you? Well, it's going to include time. It's going to include relationships. It's going to include opportunities like your education, your upbringing, your job. And of course, it will include your natural abilities. And of course, it will include things like your financial situation as well and your material goods. But let's put them all in that basket, is my point. This is what it means. Your talents are everything that God has given you. And we've all been given a different set of resources by God. Some will have heaps and heaps. Others will have relatively very little. I probably told you a number of times, the church I used to go to had this godly lady called Jill uh, with really severe MS. That's multiple sclerosis. She couldn't walk around. She needed a walking frame all the time. She couldn't sit. Um, so she lay at the back of church on a portable bed every Sunday. But she was the most godly, joyful believer I knew. And she prayed. She was a prayer warrior like no other. I'm convinced that her prayers and sending out the prayers got me through my final exam at Bible college because I was sick as a dog. And I messaged her and I said, Jill, I need prayer. And she went to pray. And right in the middle of the exams, I sat there with like Panadol and, and, uh, and Nurofen. I was taking everything I could because I had this high fever. I had to sit my final exam. Right in the middle of the exam, actually right at the beginning of the exam, my fever broke. And I, and I scored the best mark I'd ever scored at Bible college, on that exam, that final exam, right? Jill didn't, couldn't do much. She wasn't given a lot of talent, right? But she did everything she could and used it so well. 
But we're here not to talk about Jill, we're here to talk about you. And I want to suggest to you that every stage of life, and we have all stages of life here today at SWEC, every stage of life presents a set of opportunity and resource that you've been given. And so let me ask you, how are you putting them to work for your master while you wait for him to return? So maybe you're a student. Um, high school students are probably all in youth Bible study, but maybe you're a university student or a TAFE student. You have so much. Your greatest resource is probably, and you'll never get it back, energy, because you're young. You've got time. You've got fewer life responsibilities. You're probably living at home, right? And if you ever think, oh, I'm just young. I can't do anything. Well, you know what? Young people can do heaps. I was involved in the rice movement for years, and the creativity and energy and the stuff that came out of young people, high schoolers, university students, was out of this world. What about if you're a worker, a young worker? Well, yeah, you have less time than before, right? Because now you're working full time. Um, but you, you're likely still living at home, so you still have more time than others because you have fewer responsibilities, especially if you're living at home. Uh, you still have your youth and energy, and what you have is much more disposable income, right? Or what about you singles of whatever stage? Let me just say this. Being a single person, especially later on, it can be really hard, right? It can be really hard to wait, and not just waiting for Jesus' return, but for a lot of singles, it's really wanting, and that's a good desire, waiting for your future spouse. But can I suggest this? That sometimes for single people, the second kind of waiting can derail you from the first kind of waiting, right? Because the struggle is, yeah, you see all your friends get married and couple up and you really feel like this is what I want. And so you're waiting and waiting and waiting for that right person or the person to come along. But you spend all your energies waiting for that, that actually derails you from the more important waiting. And that is that ultimately Jesus will come. And that's the thing that we're to focus on. And instead, you, and instead of that, let me encourage you to look at what you do have while you're still single. Look at your married friends. Look at your friends with kids. Instead of looking with the eyes of envy, right? look with thankfulness because you know what you have? Your stage of life, right? you have much more freedom to do with your time and your money in a way that your married friends and married friends with kids won't have. That's a resource. That's what God's given you while you're single. What about if you're married without kids? Right? Well, you, got, you probably have a home, right? Whether you own it or rent it, doesn't matter. You have a space that you call your own. You have double income, right? And that's a great resource you can use to bless others, yeah? What about if you're married with kids? And there's a lot of married people with young kids especially. Of course, you have less time now, right? But, and your greatest opportunity, though, you want to see is with your children. They are your responsibility and they're your opportunity right, to raise these little people to know and love Jesus. Those of you who are mums and feel like sometimes, gosh, I haven't even had a single adult conversation all week, or I used to do so much ministry at church and do so much thing in my career, but now my attention's all my kids. Let me encourage you. You're making the most important investment, and that is these little ones for them to grow up to know not just that you love them, but that Jesus loves them, right? That's your opportunity, and the other thing you've got, by the way, if you're married with kids, is you finally have a little bit of age and wisdom to be helpful to those younger than you. Because there's going to be two or three stages of people in this church even who are younger than you. 
Well, what about if you're an empty nester? What about if you're a retiree or soon to be retired? Well, you know what? Suddenly you have so much more time and uh, freedom and disposable income. And yeah, you don't have the energy like you used to. But you know what else you've got? You've got so much wisdom and experience. Right? And likely you'll still have decades left. And the thing about SWEC is we uh, have fewer of you, right? Retirees and empty nesters and more of those who are younger, which actually means your wisdom and your leadership is much more precious than you realize. I want to encourage you, if you're retired or about to retire, if you're an empty nester, don't spend your golden years, these important years, just collecting seashells, just going on those trips that, you know, of course, go on them and enjoy them, but don't just make all of your golden years about you. Now, of course, all of these um, stages of life are generalizations. Many won't fall to any of these groups. And the point of this is not to be legalistic, right? It's not for us to look around and judge. But I just wanted to show you that at every stage of life, for even the people in this church community, every stage of life we've been entrusted with so much. So easy to compare and say, oh, I used to have so much time, but now I don't anymore. I used to have more income or more freedom. I used to... No, no, no. Think about what God has given you right now in your stage of life. And so much of it can't even be quantified by money. What are you going to do for your master? Well, come back to the uh, parable and we'll end. Because the parable ends with the master's return. And he makes an accounting with each of the servants. So the first two servants, verses 19 to 23, they show their master what they've done. All right, and notice it doesn't even matter to the master that one made five talents or $10 million and the other made four. Like the master doesn't care about how much they made because his words to each one is exactly the same. Now, do you notice verse 21 and verse 23? What does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Or literally, come and enter into your master's joy. Um, you know, it just occurred to me, this isn't in my notes. He says, you've been faithful with a few things. The few things was like four to ten million dollars. So imagine what the many things are going to be. All of those resources at our disposal now, it may seem like a lot. Sometimes you feel like, I can't make those sacrifices of time, money, energy, talents. You know what? You're going to get to heaven, and you're going to realize there were just a few things. And God is going to give me many things. Anything we sacrifice now for the sake of Jesus, it's not even scraps compared with the banquet that he will give us. Just keep that in mind, all right? But the third servant said this. The man who received one bag of gold came, Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Um, he's making excuses, right? But his excuses don't cut it because his master calls him, you wicked and lazy servant. And notice he does what we've seen, actually, if you've been with us in 1 Samuel, this is kind of what Saul did. Remember Saul? He loves to shift blame. It's always someone else's fault. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, it's someone else's fault. Just like us sometimes. 
Right? Well, we fail. It's someone else's fault. Or maybe it's your fault, God. Lord, if you hadn't done this, I would have. And, and he calls his master a hard man. Yeah, you're a hard man, but you, master, are not hardworking. I did what I thought you would do. In his mind, the master doesn't like risk. The master likes to make easy money without working. So that's why I didn't take any risks and I didn't work the money. Now, of course, the, the slave, the servant's words, you can see right through that, right? Because what have we seen about the master so far? It's nothing like the master he described. I mean, think about it. If his master didn't like taking risks, if his master was a hard man, if the master wasn't hardworking, why would he have given millions of dollars to his servants to work? It just doesn't make sense, right? If the master didn't like taking risks, would he have given millions of dollars for his servants? And so the excuses of this third servant says more about him than it does about the master. And I want to say that's the same with us. Whatever excuses we make when we don't put everything that God has given us to work for his glory, they actually say more about us. And, and in each stage of life, let's admit it, it's easy to make excuses. I started with students. Oh, I can't do that. I can't serve God because school and uni is too busy or I'm too young, let others do it. Um, if you're a worker, oh, no, work is too busy. I can't afford to serve. There's no time I'm going to establish my career. Singles, oh, if only I was married. If I had a partner, right, if God solved that problem, then I could focus on serving Him. Married without kids, oh, you know what? I've got to get into the property market. I want to travel. That's going to take up all my time and money. Married with kids, oh, little kids, they suck up all my time and money. <laughs> Retirees, my time and money is finally now mine to enjoy. And every time we make excuses, what we're doing is we reveal a false view of God. Because actually, let's remember what God is like. Even the master in this parable, what's he like? He's a, isn't God generous? Isn't God loving? Isn't he a gracious master who gives us all that we have to use for his glory and our joy? And did you notice the joy part? Did you notice that master says to his servants, "Good, well done, good and faithful servant, now come and enter into the joy of your master. You see, above all else, your master, my master in heaven, Jesus, wants our joy. He wants us to share in his joy because his joy is our joy. Did you know that when we squander our opportunities and we just use them on ourselves or when we're lazy and unfaithful, guess who's really missing out? Ourselves. We're missing out on true joy. Now, some of you know this well. Because you used to be busy serving. You used to use everything for Jesus. You used to go all out for Him. But for some reason, you've stalled or stopped. And reality is you're not happier. And Jesus is not dearer and sweeter to you. And those things that you've replaced in your life, or replaced Jesus in your life, they're not giving you greater, lasting joy. And you know it. And that's not going to be most of you here. But it may be you. And if that's you, maybe Jesus is inviting you today to repent. And so the third servant's punishment is what we end with. Verse 28 so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have, 
Even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that seems like a bit of an overreaction. But remember, this is a parable. It's fictional. right? It does have a sting, but it's a story. Um, the next parable, we'll kind of expand on that idea. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. We won't go into that. All right? But the point is this. When Jesus returns, there will be an accounting. And when Jesus returns, the reality of our salvation will be revealed. Right? Remember I said it's not the work that the servants put in that saved them. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by trying to earn credit or merit points with God. That's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace. Right? So the servants and what they did didn't save them. But whether we are saved, it will be revealed by what we do. Okay? Because if you look at these faithful servants, what do you think they were motivated by? What, what were they motivated? Why did they do that for their master, the two who actually put it to work? I want to suggest to you they didn't do it because they wanted to make money. They didn't do it because of some financial reward because at that point they didn't know that the master would reward them with many, many, many things. The master didn't say that when he gave it to them. Why did they do it? Well, they did it because they took joy in the master's joy. Because they were looking forward to the smile on their master's face. That was their motivation. You see, what kind of a person is motivated by someone else's joy? What kind of a person loves to see the smile on the face of another? A parent, a friend, a lover. A person who loves someone else wants the other person's joy more than their own. Right? They were motivated by love for their master. And that's why I say, if you are saved, if you have a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you love Jesus, then that's what you're going to be motivated by. And it will show. You're going to be motivated enough to do everything you can to be that good and faithful servant. Not because it saves you, but because it reveals that you are saved. It reveals that you truly love Jesus. And so at this point, I do want to ask, because you may be here and you don't really know if you really love Jesus. Right? Maybe you're religious, maybe you're pretty good, maybe you've been doing the church thing, but deep down in your heart, you know you don't have a real relationship with Jesus. If that's you, then today He invites you. He invites you to start that relationship because He's done everything possible for it. Remember, Jesus is a wonderful master. He's not harsh. He's not stingy. And here's the thing. He is a master that before anything He wants from you, He already gave everything for you. We didn't have time to go into this, but the master of Jesus' story, the, the one who told this story, right, went and died on the cross so that you could have a relationship with him and he wants you and he's coming back for you but for those of you who do know and love the lord jesus or maybe today's a wake-up call right will you share in the master's joy by stewarding everything he has given you for him and his glory and this is a good time of the year isn't it coming to the end of the year it's about five weeks to the end of the year um, even just in terms of church, we're looking at next year and really wanting um, members of SWEC to think about how has God made you, what has He given you, 
how can you serve him by serving the body of Christ and serving the community outside? There's so many opportunities to put it to work. This is a good time, isn't it? To ask yourself the question, what would Jesus have me do in the coming year? How can I be useful to him because I love him? And remember, whatever sacrifices you make, they're just little things. The master's joy and all that he has is so much more. Let's pray. Let's sing. Father, we pray that we might look to the Lord Jesus' coming and that might motivate us because he loved us and we love him. It might motivate us to put everything that you've given us, steward it well for your glory. We pray that in the coming year, this would be a church body where every member is a participant and a partner and not just a passenger. Because we want to see this body of Christ really grow and built up. And we want to see the world and the community out there reached so they might know the master and his joy. And we want to hear at the end of our lives, Lord Jesus, when you return or when we see you, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.